This is Derek Moyer, and welcome to the Freedom Fighter Podcast. So welcome friends to this week's Freedom Fighter podcast. We are on episode 2 of our series on Transformed. The focus the day is about sharing a transformed life with you guys. We believe that you can't do any better until you know any better. So hearing from other people's lives, hearing different stories about how people's lives have changed will inspire <coughs> It'll motivate and it'll challenge us to change. And there's great news that, you know, we hang, oh, just another story. No, each person's story is unique. And the story of how each person has responded and engaged is going to inspire and challenge and maybe help. So, you know, you might find strength, you might find encouragement to take the next steps you need to take. So it's my privilege today to introduce my good friend, Paul Algio. Paul has got a miraculous story. I mean, you'll hear things here that you'll think, wow, this is a walking miracle. Paul, good morning to you, sir. Good morning, Derek. Nice to see you and hear from you, buddy. Good to see you, mate. We're on Zoom so we can see each other. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I'm looking forward to really delve into this and uh, really bring clarity for the lives of others. So I'm just going to open up with prayer, Paul. So, Father, we just pray for our listeners this morning, this day, whatever, whenever time they're hearing this. We pray, God, for light. We pray for eyes to see, for ears to hear, for hearts that will receive. We pray that, Lord, these words will inspire. We pray that these words will motivate. We pray that these words will challenge people to change. That those who feel as if it's too late for me, um, I can't be transformed. I pray that, God, this will bring hope that this will bring life into people's lives, God, and, and give them that uh, motivation to change. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, Paul, let's go back into your story and give, give the listeners a bit of an understanding of actually what was going on for you, what what was forming you in your childhood and, and through to how you found yourself and the position, the condition you were in as, mm-hmm. your, as a man. When I first met you, Derek, do you know what I mean? I was uh, completely disappointed. I mean, I, I struggled to be honest uh, with myself, never mind anybody else. Mm-hmm. Five years ago we met, mm-hmm. uh, and at that point I was about 32, uh, and for, for half, more than half of my life up until that point had consisted of using drugs, and, and for a lot, of the, a lot of those years selling drugs, I was completely hopeless in the sense that I was so discouraged and disappointed with, with my life mm-hmm. uh, for where I found myself, what my lifestyle was like. I was disappointed. I would look around about me and I would see, you know, people's lives seem to have, you know, uh, fruit. People would be going holidays. People would be getting married. People would be having kids. Mm-hmm. You know, the sort of happy family, you know, the cars, the work, you know, stability. Uh, it just looked, it was attractive to me and it was something I didn't have. Uh, for a young age, uh, you know, getting involved in drugs. Mm-hmm. I believed a lie that somehow I could live a, a good life selling drugs and using drugs. Mm-hmm. I believed that somehow I could get, it, it could satisfy me and give me the fulfilment mm-hmm. that, that I desired. 
and I can see now, looking back, you know, very early on, I, I, I knew that I was never going to get that, but I'd committed myself to that way of life. And six months turned into a year, a year turns into two and so on. And before you know it, you know, you've lost five or six years. Mm-hmm. You've been in, in, in and out of prison. Mm-hmm. You've had relationships break up. Well, I wasn't the dad that I could have been, mm-hmm. which added more disappointment on mm-hmm. top of more disappointment mm-hmm. on top of abuse and rejection. And till I got to the point where I just sort of had accepted that, that what, I'd, what I could observe mm-hmm. other people as having was never going to be mine. Mm-hmm. And that I might as well just continue to, to hit the self-destruct button, mm-hmm. uh, take more drugs, mm-hmm. drink more drink, mm-hmm. uh, and just keep going from one bad situation mm-hmm. uh, to another. Yep. And I think, as you say, when I initially met you, there was this real sense of being so trapped. And as you th- were able to talk about the story, you know, start to open up about here's here's what is no going right for me. Did you have any hope to change? I had a desire to change. I, I always believed. I believed that there was more out there. You know, well, I don't know. I, I would have probably said then that I believed that I, I was meant for more than that and that there was more in life than me, but there was absolutely no evidence of it. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, like it seemed as I got older that my life was becoming worse. Mm-hmm. In fact, my life did become worse. Mm-hmm. It didn't seem like it. That was my reality. Mm-hmm. As a teenager and in my mid-twenties, I was, you know, I, 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 as a young boy, I was sensitive. Sensitive, shy, lack confidence, self-esteem. But when you start to take drugs, you know, those inhibitions go. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I used to love taking Valium, you know, because that sense of ease and comfort that came over you, mm-hmm. it's sort of as if it just stilled, you know, that, that, that stuff, that internal stuff, that conflict, that sense of kind of feeling that you just didn't fit in, mm-hmm. it just went. And then as that left you, or were there drugs as well as you took them, you started to act in a way that wasn't, you know, accurate to actually who you were. Mm-hmm. And you end up presenting this persona of somebody which isn't actually your reality, mm-hmm. uh, and and I and I did that uh, for years. So, but so my my life did get worse in the sense that that was although I was shy and sensitive as a teenager. The more I took drugs and the more I got involved in crime and that lifestyle, my heart became hard. Mm-hmm. And in situations that once would make me feel maybe fearful, mm-hmm. uh, or I would maybe feel anxious and end up gone, and you start to become comfortable in situations that you should never be. Mm-hmm. Uh, comfortable but that all that stuff sort of went and then I was left uh, I remember being in a, I remember been doing uh, the Scottish border staying and, and I was on my way to uh, Sockton prison mm-hmm. so in the back of a security cord van going up to uh, going up to the jail and I remember feeling this overwhelming sense of disappointment this sense of you know knew I knew I'd messed up no, no really I'm circumstantial obviously in the fact that the position I was in uh, and the relationships in my life that was sort of been left behind. But I had uh, I'd went to chapel. My grand had taken me to chapel a couple of times and I went to a Catholic uh, school. Mm-hmm. So I knew, I was aware of the Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. And I just had this sense within myself that I had uh, that I had broken them. Now, I'm not saying I've killed people. I mean, in, in, the, in my actions, I've, I've attempted to. But I knew in my heart I definitely had, with the amount of bitterness, resentment, anger, 
that I carried about for years. I was so sensitive that the slightest thing would cause a resentment in me, and I would have this anger towards people, places, things, organisations, whatever it be. But in that back of that, but I wanted to cry, I wanted to weep, but I couldn't. I was so hard that I couldn't. Uh, that it would, the emotion wouldn't flow, and that, that was really as a result of childhood stuff and growing up and suppressing feelings, you know. Mm-hmm. Nobody ever encouraged me to express how I was feeling and be honest about how I felt. It just didn't happen. Mm-hmm. So any emotions that I, that I had just would push, push down, mm-hmm. or you can't have that, as if somehow emotions weren't normal. But I found myself in the back of that van and I prayed, and I didn't know nothing about religion, or prayers or nothing. My, my prayer was simple. God, help me, and I'll change. That was a, It was that simple, and I didn't even speak it. It was an internal thought, mm-hmm. uh, but I knew at this point, over 10 years into my, my lifestyle, that it was never going to work, do you know what I mean? I, okay, I was maybe earning some more money mm-hmm. at times, but I still had the same disappointment when I woke. I still had the same uh, emptiness. Mm-hmm. I still had the same relational problems. I still had the same anger. I still had all that internal stuff going on. Mm-hmm. And I did not know what to do with it, but I prayed, and, and the desire for 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 crying, and, and the desire really to make money the way that it had been there before, did start to go over time. Now I wasn't perfect, and I still did do things after mm-hmm. then. But the point of me saying all this was, in the latter years before actually coming to faith, and my life being changed, mm-hmm. I was left in this sort of wilderness of no being the man that I used to be and left with all that internal stuff, that unresolved stuff. Mm-hmm. And the only way, the only place I knew to take it was the, the off-licence, you know, drink. That was my solution at that point. I was still on uh, drugs. I was still taking drugs from time to time. Mm-hmm. But I still, all through that, I still had this sense that, that I was made for more than this. But there was nothing about my life that had any evidence of that. Mm-hmm. And as I said, my life got worse in the sense that at least for me at that time in my life as a, a teenager and into my early 20s, I was making cash, so it seemed like my life did have purpose, you know, because my purpose in life was to make money, that's what I'd love for. But then I, that wasn't there. So my life to me at that time was getting far more out of control. I was far more out of control with my life and I didn't like it. I didn't like being left with all that stuff. I didn't like, I didn't like to feel that I didn't have the control to do things to make myself feel better. And only, the only thing I knew to do was to drink. So I had a desire to change. There was something about me that made me think I was there was more than this. And I did what I could in order to try and make changes, mm-hmm. which always uh, resulted in more failure. Mm. And that, that's really well-rounded reflection, mate. People who are listening who knew you maybe remember... Or remember Paul, the drug dealer, the the violent guy, the angry guy. But behind it all, it's like, here's what really is going on inside. The purpose of doing this, this series, is trying to help people identify that it's not any different for any person. That their story has got entangled in something. The story's been trapped, it's it's been frozen in some, stuck in some unresolved issue or part of development and then you're going well I've tried all these things I've tried to make money I've tried all the you know the the jails the violence the drugs the the sex all the different things that we we used and it was this doesn't this didn't give me the fulfillment I, I desired it's important to say that you know you were quite involved in crime 
uh, well, I, I'd been involved in crime from I was uh, 15, about 15. Mm-hmm. Before I ever smoked a joint, I remember, I can still remember, sitting late side court in Coburnie, just at the top of the public uh, park, and I remember sitting with one fag and a packet of fag papers, and I practised rolling joints before I ever had any hash. Mm-hmm. And I did that, so because, I, as I said, I was shy, lacked confidence, I always was thinking about how can I make myself look more confident? How can I make myself look like I know what I'm doing? Mm-hmm. So even at that very young age, before I ever had any hash, I wanted to know how to actually roll a joint. Uh, but so, but within, very, within weeks of me ever getting a bit of hash for the first time, my brain always what? how can I get this without having to pay for it? And the answer was simple, buy a quarter of hash, you know, and sell five or six gram, and the money you get for that will pay for the, re- pay for the rest of it, and you get that for nothing. And I did that for, for a young age, and all my pals, I would be the one who would get the hash for all my pals, I would be the one with the tick bill. Uh, and by, I was kicked out of school uh, and, and at the beginning of fourth year, and by that point I was taking half bars of hash up to school, and I was selling deals to people for beef, uh, dorai. Uh, by like 16, 17, I was involved in other things, ekkies and, and speed. Uh, I began to get, for a young age, I was always about connections. I always wanted the connections because I knew if you got the right connections, you would get the better drugs and you would get them cheap enough. So therefore, if I got drugs cheap enough, I would be making more money. And there also was a pride thing and an ego thing about that because I always wanted to be connected. Uh, I wanted to bring about the people with power. Uh, but at 16, 17, then I was taking drugs to other parts, like up to Johnston and that, and we were selling ekkies and that to, to, to boys up there, and I started to network more. I knew for a young age that if I was ever going to have any chance of living this this uh, kind of glamorous lifestyle that I had in my head that was possible, I knew I needed to get connections out with a wee town like Coburnie, because I knew in an area so small, Everybody knew what everybody was doing and names were being fired in left, right and centre. So I began to get connections elsewhere and I, and I began to distribute drugs, you know, in a much wider uh, kind of network so that people who I was given drugs to didn't know each other. Therefore, there was no chance of two people being able to testify against me. That was always my thinking. I eventually moved away, but but, uh, but drug dealing continued. Uh, you know, I had family members who, who were involved in, in selling drugs and supplying drugs. You know, drugs were being brought up for, uh, you know, England, uh, which were, I was getting quite large quantities, you know, thousands and thousands of pounds worth. I was making a lot of money at one point. I started off, as I said, buying a quarter of hash, uh, you know, to get a gram or two for myself or nothing. And by the time I was in my early, my early 20s, I was, I was making between two and three grand a week. I was banking, like 50, I was saving £1,500 a week. You know, I had, you know, numerous cars and, you know, nice clothes and, and all the technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was, I was greedy. I always wanted more. I always wanted more. It was never enough. And see the more money I had, the less money I would spend. The day, the money that I do have and the money that I do earn so that I can live comfortably and do nice things. Back then, I was so trapped. Mm. I, I was such a slave to the fact of making money. It was all about the amount that I had. Mm. It was all about my pride. Mm. So I could tell myself, mm. oh, you've got 15 grand, or you've got 20 grand. Mm. It was all, it, it comforted me. Mm. It did the same as what drugs did. It just made me feel a bit better. Mm. It did the same as, uh, you know, the, the other things in my life that were doing. It was just about how they made me feel. I didn't enjoy them, uh, and they certainly never 
uh, brought me any peace. You know the way through that. You know there was you know, there were times where I would get get you know stolen goods. You know off the back of lorries and mm. you know I've sold everything for uh, toiletries, <laughs> to mobile phones, to to watches, to jackets, to you know to everything in it. And I would turn my hand to it yeah. uh, just to, to make a a a, a buck or two. So I. Crime was a big part of my life, mm-hmm. uh, and that was one of the first first things that had to go in my life, mm-hmm. uh, because and I'm so grateful for that. But I did feel when that left my life, when when I st- I stopped doing that stuff, there was a void in my life, mm-hmm. uh, and I was left because <clears throat> that allowed me uh, to forget about all the internal stuff because I was so busy thinking about this and thinking about that. Mm-hmm. I was so busy with people needing stuff, needing me, mm-hmm. that I didn't feel as needy. Uh, because people needed me, mm. so I, you know, crime is a big part, big, big part of my life. Yeah. Yep. And even in the midst of that, Paul, you share your potential was evident. Although you were only doing the best with what you knew at the time, it was like, but you, the way you were organising and leading and doing all these things, it was all doing rang hands. Yep. But there was potential getting used. There was ability getting used. You know, now we we want to move into the beginning of the transformation. Because mm-hmm. although it looked as if, goodness me, look at the, the life I'm living, the crime, the violence, the, the, the money, but yet deep down inside, nah, I'm no, this is no, this is no it. This is no the way to live. So I meet you, one of the guys, Paul Payne it was, gave you a, a card, at a bus stop or something like that, I don't know, or something like that, a taxi. He was at a taxi, it was Aki, Alan McCullough, who connected with you, I think. And then we connected. Mm-hmm. You came to the Freedom Fighters, and uh, started to get to know you, started to hear the story. And just to share, before you share a wee bit about that, I had just lost somebody. One of the boys we were helping, a great wee guy for in called Gareth Boyley. Really loved the boy, really you know, got on well with him, and special wee guy. And he dies. Now, I poured my, my heart into him, gave him everything I knew, but he ended up buying drugs and he dies, dies an overdose. And I met you, I was grieving. My heart was my heart was down, you know. And I remember meeting you hang you know, I could I cope with another death, another somebody not coming through. And I'm glad to say today you, you have came through. You've responded in ways that are I'm so emotional about, you know, when I think of how you've how you've come through, you know. But that initial stage of your change, let's talk a wee bit about that. How did that happen? What was it? What was going on with you? What was? What was? What were you looking for? What, what did you hear that made you go, "Wow, I want that"? Yeah. Well, uh, as I said, you know, like, well, it's actually been quite humbling because you know, before you asked me about this, I'd been reflecting anyway, and I came across some stuff that I'd written, and it's it's just it's humbling, you know what I mean, reading because I get a sense of where I was at at the time. Mm-hmm. And although to anybody looking in, my life's completely changed. Sometimes the way I'm feeling, sometimes you don't, you know, you can forget how much of a change you've experienced in your life. And it's only actually when you reflect that you see. And even in my tone and how I write things, I can tell back then there was resentment and bitterness. Mm-hmm. Stuff that I'm glad to say is no massively there. It is there from time to time, of course. Of course mm-hmm. it, it is, but no uh, massively. But And I came across something uh, that I'd written in the 1st of January 2015, I was in up in Ailsa Hospital. I was in, try to get, well, not trying to get after the drink, I just really needed respite, if I'm honest. 
uh, you know, the, the worries and cares that I had, you know, were just weighing me down. Uh, I was a, a wreck emotionally. And it's, it's interesting some of the language that I use because by this point, I've not had any conversation with any Christians at all by, at the 1st of January 2015. It's not happened yet. Uh, I have been searching. I started to go back to the chapel, the Catholic Church, because as I said earlier, that's where I had went a few times with my gran. So I was searching. Uh, I was searching. You know, I would have uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and stuff chat the door, and I would invite them in. I would invite them in. I mean, see if I'm, see if I'm brutally honest, I was interested to hear what they had to say, but I knew what they said wasn't what I was looking for. But more than that, you know, I just wanted company. I did. I was so lonely uh, in life. The fact that somebody wanted to come and talk to me and was sincere, the conversation didn't revolve on about drugs and that was uh, was a good thing. So I was searching. Mm-hmm. So on the 1st of January 2015, this is what I write. It is going to be a lot. This is me reflecting on, on my life. Uh, just obviously, this is part of my, I, I, I see this as part of my sort of therapeutic uh, journey mm-hmm. uh, and, and part of my healing. It is going to be a long, scary, unpredictable, turbulent and lonely journey. So please give me the strength required and the tools essential to accomplish my mission. And in brackets, it says rebuff. <laughs> now, I honestly don't know where I got that from. Mm. I mean, when I read that, it's like I'm writing a letter to somebody, but I'm not. I'm just writing it. Mm. Now, that was me expressing my heart. Now I read that and I see that was me actually praying. I just didn't know it. <laughs> uh, yeah. But then I go on to say in February, by this point we have hooked up, I know I have an incredibly hard, long journey in front of me mm-hmm. and I look forward to it mm-hmm. rather than looking back in the rearview mirror, mm-hmm. which has been a lifelong experience for me. Mm-hmm. So just in the space of just over a month, mm-hmm. I can see when I write that mm-hmm. how at the beginning of January, the context, I, I write a lot more. I've not got enough time to share it just now. Mm-hmm. But the context of me writing then was from a place of depression, despair, hopelessness. Mm-hmm. You know, no, 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 no sure at all what life uh, holds for me. And then by by February, mm-hmm. it says I look forward to it mm-hmm. rather than looking back. Because see, any time I look back my life like I was doing in January, there was disappointment. Mm-hmm. I got discouraged mm-hmm. and I got done. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, it came about, as you said, I gave, I gave a wee uh, card by Paul Payne. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the second time Alec had gave me one the first time. Mm-hmm. I met Alec at the football mm-hmm. and, I, and I knew that it was significant. But just with, with, with things that were going on for me, distractions, you know, I ended up losing a year. Uh, no bother, losing the card. And then I was outside a pub in Cowinnan and I got into Paul's taxi. I'd been arguing with two guys outside a pub, getting into Paul's taxi. And Paul obviously seen me and thought, that boy needs help. And he gave me the card, and then that's when I—that's when I contacted you at that point. I tried everything, Dale. Mm-hmm. I tried everything. I tried everything in my own power, my own strength. Some mm-hmm. people say to me, "Oh, you've done great," and I tell them, "I've not done great at all." Do you know what I mean? I never had the willpower to make any changes. Mm-hmm. Any time I tried to change my life, I ended up in a worse situation than before. Mm-hmm. Uh, I tried doctors. I tried prescriptions. Mm-hmm. Tried. Everything, everything and anything that was out there, I tried and it always failed. It always mm-hmm. failed. That was the bottom line. Mm-hmm. So I was prepared to try something different here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I knew that if, if anything was going to change, my mm-hmm. approach needed to change. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was humble enough to, to reach out to you. Mm-hmm. And the fact that the group was called Freedom Fighters, I knew I was trapped. Mm-hmm. I knew I never had freedom. Mm-hmm. 
I didn't know I didn't know what bound me. I didn't know the things that trapped me. I couldn't articulate it, but I knew I wasn't free. And I knew I needed somebody or something to fight for my freedom. So when I seen freedom fighters, I thought, I need freedom. Maybe these folk know how to how to uh, to get it. Brilliant. And I think it, you know, just hearing your story here, I mean it's helped me, you know, make sense. At that point it's like I didn't know the background. And you, when you understand, when you're sharing vulnerably, it's like, wow, you know, making sense of things. One thing for me was, I remember after that situation with Gareth dying, I knew, give this boy vision. One of my first meetings, I remember driving up the road after a meeting, and, and I was speaking out your life deliberately, vision, about the impact of your life. And the thing is, unbeknown to me, I didn't know that you were actually a leader. You were being a leader. You had leadership qualities. You were organising and distributing and managing. and You know, that's what you were doing. But I was speaking that over you for good. And that produced incentive. I believe all my heart, we are motivated by reward. So having a goal, having a vision is absolutely key for anybody who's been trapped in this, my life's, I'm a disappointment. I'm a failure. My life's, my, my, there is no hope for me. It's too late for me. It's too, I'm too, it's too late to be transformed. So I saw in you, uh, oh, I, I mean, I know I, I wasn't manipulating you. I was genuinely grieving and mourning the loss of my friend. And I said to you, I couldn't, I couldn't handle that again. After that, that was my fourth, I think that happened four times in the times I was running that group. And, uh, and, you know, and I felt a determination and resolve for you going, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I felt, I'm, I'm not going to uh, be another one of them. And, uh, you know, it definitely helped galvanise your... Because I think it's important to note, this transformation, it doesn't happen by accident. It only happened when you act on your own behalf and you done that right from the beginning. You were not sitting about in la-la land going round and round in circles. You said, is that what I need to do? And you were humble enough to do it. So let's talk a wee bit about that process. Yeah, I, I, and I remember, you know, I don't remember the details because we had many conversations, but I, I, I came across some of them in my, my, my journal and in one of them I, I write about you. You'd said to me, which is maybe similar, certainly would have been, maybe in the same conversation as, as you sharing about Gareth or certainly uh, soon after, but in it, uh, I've written in it that you'd said to me about being a, a breath of fresh air and I remember, in my notes I've written, well if I'm a breath of fresh air to you, you're a new set of lungs to me <laughs> <clears throat> because the life I was getting for you, we were obviously mutually encouraging mm. one, one another and uh, but you're right there. I, I did. I, I mean, I, I took the, the 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 advice on board, you know. And it was like I, I tried everything, you know, that was out there. And the stuff that I was being asked today, uh, and the stuff that was being suggested, I remember like, like yourself, Charles, and other people. Mm-hmm. I get identification for the first time in my life because every time I went to, uh, you know, a support worker or a, a drug worker or you know a criminal justice worker, people. Always, they were always nice, you know, and they tried to do their best, but I never ever left. And that was one of the things I got uh, for yourself, 
uh, you know, and for Charles and for other people, I knew that he's cared first and foremost, but more than that, I knew and how you've articulated yourself and when you shared your own experience, you should experience stuff with me. And that gave me hope that, because I'd look at your life, I mean, in it, it's quite, it was quite funny as well because in, it, in my journaling, I refer to you as being my spiritual advisor, which you were. <laughs> <laughs> which you were I mean I would never use that language today you're a friend you know what I mean mm-hmm. uh, and the day I would say you were a mentor do you know what I mean mm-hmm. it, but the way I describe it there that's just where I was at do you mm-hmm. know what I mean and that's what you were because you were advising me uh, in the spiritual realm you were sharing uh, things about God to me mm-hmm. you were sharing that God had a plan and purpose for my life mm-hmm. and that regardless what had happened you know, he would use that stuff and those tests would become my testimony mm. and those messes mm. would become my message. Mm. Uh, but I, I threw myself into things, uh, Del. I, if I'm honest, I enjoyed, I enjoyed uh, the commitment, and uh, the, sorry, the company. I enjoyed the fact that I could go along to groups and be part of. And in one of other notes, what I write is, I could never have thought that sitting in a group of people of all backgrounds could have such an impact in two weeks. So this is me writing at this time on the 11th of February 2015. So I'd obviously been to the group for the second time at this point, Mm. and that was my reflection. The benefit of what I felt in two weeks for going along and committing, and that's all I really did. I took on board the suggestions. I got connected, uh, and I was committed and disciplined uh, to, to, to show up to listen, to ask questions, to share stuff. I remember my conversation with you, and I remember you telling me about the Bible being 66 books in the one and how they were written by so many different people. Mm. And I remember saying to you, oh, surely some trackbots just put in a lot of nonsense. Do you know, <laughs> I remember having conversations like that with you because that's where my mind was at, and that's what, that's what I was thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I know I got connected there. Uh, yourself and other people and I was committed to going online if I'm honest the, the, the structure was you know fantastic for me mm-hmm. and it was great to network and meet with people it was great for people to show a, a genuine concern and interest for me people weren't interested in when you get paid or mm-hmm. who's got what drugs who's stabbed who who's slashed who who's mm-hmm. gone with who mm-hmm. they were just they were just they were smiling at you they were just telling me that I was welcome, mm-hmm. that they were glad to see me, that they hoped to see me again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that was invaluable mm-hmm. uh, to somebody who was so isolated and disconnected from the community at that mm-hmm. time. Brilliant, Paul. It really is. It's amazing. <coughs> it? And to hear your reflections there, they say in the programme that half measures availed is nothing. And I've saw this in you. I've saw it with you and other people I've run about. And I see you as making their progress in five years than they've done in 15 years. And that's not a slight in envy, but it's the reality of the effect God's instructions have had in your life or are, are, are have and are will have is determined by our response to them. Paul admonishes us in Philippians 2 to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. He says, For it's God who works in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Another translation basically summarises like this. We have to cooperate with the God who's operating within us, who's, who gives us the desire and the power to do what pleases him. So the transformation is, there's nothing magic about it. It's this hard work. You know, you're overweight, you need to go to the gym and work it. You need, if you've got a marriage problem, you need to, you need, you need to get help to re- resolve it. If you've got parenting problems, you need to go and get information. So the folk that are listening, you know, this, is, this, this isn't like, oh, listen to my great story. Our story's getting rewritten every day. 
And I want just to share a couple of you things, Paul, that, you know, just to reflect upon. Because part of this journey, you think, oh, you went to a meeting and was everything brilliant and rosy after this? I remember taking you up to my brother-in-law's, me, you and Alec McCulloch, <laughs> up in, it was bank knock, he was moving. And uh, so we have been lifting slabs all day and uh, you, want, you want to tell the story for there, no? <laughs> oh, oh, I remember as I was the medication and the drink. Uh, I, I used to sweat badly any time I did any sort of exercise, and I just had visions of me cutting about moving slabs with a sweat band on. <laughs> and, then, and then on the way home, uh, getting you to stop at a shop, and I, I dived in and came out with a bottle of Buckfast. I know. That, that was me celebrating, mate. See, to me, Dale, at that point, yeah. you need to remember, mate, that was me doing a, a good deed, man, a, a, a good day's graft, mate. Yeah. And, and in the world that I live, mate, that's what you did. You worked hard, you came home, and you had a drink. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Yep, so I mean, that team, I remember that, me and Alec were sitting in the water and I was like, what? He's came out with a bottle of butt fast. So it's just, it's, it's just the reality of, this is not a game of perfect. You know, mm-hmm. you came to God, I mean, we were, what we were going through at the time was Amazing Grace course for Freedom in Christ Ministries, and we were delving into the story of the prodigal son. Now you, I remember writing a blog and you were the, your life was in my mind about, the, the son who'd ruined his life with all this riotous prodigal living ended up in this pig pen and he was so empty that he was looking to the pods that the pigs were eating to see if that could fill this and quench this uh, hunger and desire and discontent and I felt like at the time it was like you were telling me I've been to psychiatrists, the social work uh, all these formal systems of help and none of them have given me life that story is about the son saying, I need to get back to my father. And that is what happened with you. You said, ah, I'm going back to my dad. And that initial, um, you know, that that's the first um, step, was going back to my dad, finding out his plan, finding out the life that he offers, the forgiveness, the healing, the restoration, the reconciliation. And uh, another thing that's important to note, from my perspective, because of how deep you were in the darkness, I remember sitting in the car with you sometimes, I'm going, what what, what did I do with this boy? You know, what did I do, God, to help in certain things? The content, it was, it was early days, the content of what the conversation was. I felt led, give him this wee book. It was all about the words in your mouth. And me and you went to walk one day up to the Golf Course, and I was giving this book to you. And uh, there was such opposition about you getting that. Was that not the case? Uh, that was that. I still remember clearly, you know, like when, when you went handed me that, I remember this thought, man, it came into my head to knock it out your hand. Mm-hmm. And I just knew at that point, you know, because that I recognised that thought, a discernment to recognise that, but I didn't understand it. But this is what I did know. What it did make me uh, think was... That's no a rational thought to me. So I knew the source of that mm-hmm. was from a negative perspective. Mm-hmm. I knew that, that that thought was for the devil. Mm-hmm. And I knew that at all costs I had to take the book and actually read it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what I did. I didn't date straight away, but mm-hmm. uh, I remember there was about a month. I remember I read it just in my head. I didn't read it out loud. No. It asked you, mm-hmm. suggest to you to read it out loud three times a day. I didn't do that straight away. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I remember the day that I did start doing it. It was a Saturday, 25th of April, 2015. Mm-hmm. 
and then the rest is really history for her. Mm-hmm. These are the disciplines that when once adjusted to a change in your life. I just want to share one thing about, I remember going to your mum's house one night, you weren't there, I can't quite remember the full context, but I remember the look in your mum, there was a tension, there was an anxiety on her, it was if she was waiting to hear the worst imaginable news that she's been waiting to hear for all this, all this time since you were in such a bad condition. And I thought, you know, as we're thinking about this interview, I thought, that's the most miraculous things. That no matter what the story's been like and the impact your story has had in your family, that God can turn it all around for good. When we respond to him, when we do the hard work of change, when we allow God into the parts of our story, and there's a school of thought that talking about your past and delving into things is is, uh, is wrong. It's it's not helpful. But it's misguided because the bottom line is talking about these things actually help liberate you from them. They help you make sense of your past. They help you get to the, a place where you find new perspective. And then that perspective leads to better actions. So what you're finding with most people, and I'm talking to boys up in Coburnley, you know, that, that know your story. Their story is, has remained trapped at certain parts. And they're just, it's Groundhog Day going round and round the, the same old mountains. I want you just to finish, Paul, by saying about what things have you like adopted into your own life? Key things that you would say to others. These are the things that are really important to um, exercise, establish in your own life, to keep you free, to keep you on the right path. Yeah, so, I mean, as I've already said, the first thing I did was I got connected. I had to come to the place recognising that I couldn't do this on my own. Uh, and any other solution that I had been offered at that point hadn't worked. Uh, so I needed to try something new, and I knew I needed to be radical, because as you've said, half uh, measures avail nothing. That was my experience. I always said I wanted change in my life, but I never really... What I, what I was really saying was, was no, I just don't want to take a certain type of drug. I always wanted to make wee tweaks, and that was it. There was no overhaul. Uh, there was no, you know, commitment to real change. It was just a wee tweak here and a wee tweak there. And it always ended up leading me back to uh, being worse than what I was before. Well, the first thing was I was humble to be able to ask for help. And that's why I contacted yourself. I got connected, as I've already said, getting along in groups. Uh, I began to get a bit of accountability in my life. Began to share, you know, in a group setting and I wouldn't be one. I remember sitting in a meeting up in Glasgow. It was a recovery meeting. And they were talking about honesty. Uh, and I knew there and then I wasn't being totally honest. I would go into meetings and I would be honest about what had happened in my day so far. So I would maybe say, I've no drank today. I've only taken my prescription medication. And I would maybe just share a wee bit about how I'm feeling. But what I realised at that meeting was there's a difference between honesty and transparency. Because see, if I was being transparent, what I would be saying is, oh, I've no drank today, but last night I did drink. And the night when I go home, I'm going to be drinking as well. And right now I'm thinking about drinking. I didn't understand what transparency was. And that's something I've learned over these last few years, is to be transparent, be honest. Be honest about your feelings, your thoughts, your intentions, your motives. I found that a great help at keeping me grounded. Because see, if I'm honest about that stuff, that's the stuff that will stop me from making bad decisions. If I catch the thoughts, if I catch the motives, 
and the desires early on, they're never got to be burst, they're never got to be a reality in my life. And I've found that a great help to be honest, to be vulnerable and actually speak to people and say, look, I'm struggling with this, I'm feeling insecure, I'm feeling insensitive, or I'm, I'm worried about this, or I'm worried about that, because these are all things that everybody gets. The difference is the day I can recognise them, and I've got the strength and ability to be able to share them with people, eh, rather than just pretending that I'm not there, and being in denial about who I am and where I'm at. But really, all this, all this stuff I'm saying is true and relevant. But, you know, that, that really what it comes down to for me is... Psalm 30, verse 2 to 3 says, Lord my God, I called to you for help and you healed me. You, Lord, brought me up from the realm of the dead and you spared me from going down to the pit. And that's what I did, you know. Aye, there was practical practical elements to this, but really first and foremost, I, I cried out to God. I wasn't aware of all this and I didn't know today, but... As, as we met and I was introduced to other people, that's who I started to look to for help. I remember uh, the first day or two days being clean. I text you and Charles and none of you get back to me. Obviously busy or whatever. And I remember it was some random text. But I remember just feeling and getting a sense of, and a thought came over me saying, why are you asking men? I've already set you free. And I just knew there and then that what God was saying to me was, he wasn't telling me, don't bother speaking to people. What he was saying is, don't look for affirmation and look for people to tell you what you're doing is right. You're free, now walk in it. Mm-hmm. Now at that point, I was coming off all sorts of prescription drugs, methadone, Valium, mm-hmm. sleeping tablets, drink, antidepressants. Mm-hmm. Nothing about my circumstances should have given me any sort of peace, but I had comfort. And I did have peace, mm-hmm. knowing that I was being set free and that was five years ago, Dale. Mm-hmm. And in five years, I've not had one. I've not had one Valium, no one dry a joint, no methadone, nothing, absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. Completely sober, clean, abstinent, 100% teetotal. Mm-hmm. That is what happens. But the key to my transformation was that I cried out to God and he healed me mm-hmm. and he helped me. He raised me from the realm of the dead mm-hmm. and kept me from going to the pit. That's my story in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. But it involved getting connected with people, being honest, being humble, being vulnerable, and beginning to open my life up mm-hmm. to other people mm-hmm. to receive direction, to receive instruction. And above all else, as you as you have highlighted, it's important that we respond to this stuff because see if the best surgeons in the world only sat around about a table and talked about surgeries all day long, what comfort does that bring to you when you need an operation? Mm-hmm. Absolutely none. You need to know that they, they are gone uh, and they have the ability to actually put this into practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the exact same with us. My pal says you can't ride two horses with a one bum. You either want a new life or you don't. And if you want a new life, you need to look at all the ways in which you've tried to change your life before and see if they don't work. You need to try something else. That's all that I did. And really well done, Paul. I'm really proud of you, mate. Really proud of what you've came through and how you're now leading others. And i got a lovely wife, a new baby, your family's restored. Maybe just closing prayer, Paul, just think about the, the guys that are listening that, that knew you. You know, Pray for them, pray for the, the courage and strength to take these steps. Father, I thank you for uh, your goodness, Lord. I thank you that that when we do cry out to you, Lord, sincerely, 
uh, you you do answer their prayers, Lord, and I thank you that you have the ability uh, to, to heal us. I thank you that you have the ability to raise us from the dead. And I thank you that that's what you offer to anyone who comes to you uh, and asks for your help. And I pray, Father, for anyone listening uh, that they would consider doing this. Uh, no, no mockingly, but sincerely, that they would consider crying out to you, asking you for help. And I pray that they might receive that help. I pray that they might receive hope this day amidst despair and discouragement and disappointment and hopelessness. I pray that they might receive hope right now, that their life can be changed. I pray that you would give them the desire to see change in their life. I pray that you would give them a vision to see what their life could be. I pray that you would show them the plans and purposes that you have for them. And I pray that they would be willing to respond and receive all that you have uh, for them. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been the Freedom Fighter Podcast. Thanks for listening, everybody. If you want to connect with our services or you want more info or details about upcoming events, connect with us online at www.freedomfighter.life or drop us an email at info at freedomfighter.life. Until next time, God bless you.